I'm an architect. I ran a digital agency. I built e-commerce and media companies. Then I went and was the CMO of a real estate business. Then I was the CEO of an opera. Now the founder of a consulting firm. I've never come from a place of confidence through competence. I started architecture, never built anything. I went into digital agency. I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know anything about real estate in Dubai. I didn't know zero things about running a performance art space. The fact that I was always incompetent was very freeing because it also meant that I didn't rely on my expertise to feel confidence. I care about making the workplace a better place because if you're going to spend 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day doing this, you better love it. Maybe the reason I show up as rebellious or willing to take risks is actually because I deeply care. If the first method doesn't work, we'll try the second. And welcome to Everyday Leadership podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership. As always, I have an amazing guest for you in the building, and I'm going to ask her to introduce herself so you can get a real flavor of yeah, who she is and what she's about. Over to you, my esteemed guest. Sure. Hi, I'm Marilyn Zakauer. I'm the founder and CEO of a organizational development consultancy called Cosmic Centaurs, um, and what we do is we help leaders who truly believe in the power of creating great organizations to unlock um, the capabilities of their people and their companies and deliver on their strategy. I am Lebanese-Canadian, currently living in Dubai with my husband, my daughter, our cat, Millie. Um, And I'm very excited and intrigued to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Marilyn. It is a pleasure, an absolute pleasure to have you on here. And in fact, I'm going to go back to, did you grow up in Lebanon? Yeah, so I grew up um, mostly in Lebanon, but also part of my childhood on and off, back and forth to Montreal. How was that growing up in Lebanon? Um, you know, Lebanon is a very special place, I think. Um, it's, it's a, first of all, what's beautiful about it is the sense of community and family that, you know, you still get in parts of the world where, where those values are strong. But it's also an incredibly diverse place and a really small place. And and so you learn to understand and navigate and respect and build bridges between you and the people around you who are different. And I think that's just something that I, I didn't realize, but really equipped me to be out in the world. Um, and it's also a place of, you know, a lot of feeling welcomed and a lot of abundance. Um, you know, I think of Lebanon, I think of what we eat when we're there and how we feel and how we're hugged by the weather and the people. Um, there's some things we eat in Lebanon that no one's ever heard of. I always find pure joy in explaining this to people. Like, for example, I don't know if you've ever had that, but we eat um, almonds when they're still green. And so when an almond is still green, the outer shell, which none of, you know, no one sees it. If you're buying almonds in a supermarket, you just get the inside piece. But it grows in a bigger shell. And when it's really young, the shell is still soft enough that you can bite into it and it's a bit it tastes a bit soury and you dip it in salt and it's like a really great snack for like the spring 
Um, so yeah, I think of all of these little perks and unique things about growing up there as well. And just the people, they're just incredible. Maybe, you know, you know a few Lebanese, uh, I'm sure. Everybody knows, a, everybody knows a Lebanese person for some reason. Um, and yeah, it's just, you always feel welcomed and hugged. And, and that's what I think about when I think of home. Even though it's been going through a lot of uh, tumultuous years, but somehow those values continue to shine through even in the worst of times. In fact, when I think about the Lebanese people I know, the word that was coming to my mind is joy. There is always this sense of happiness and joy when I'm in their presence. And I can definitely resonate with uh, lots of times I go to their house, like, yeah, come on in, let's eat. And we sit down and have this big family meal. And you kind of leave just like, oh, I just want to sleep because it's just too much food. <laughs> For sure. And you talked about that sense of being, I guess, been exposed to different cultures and how you didn't think about it growing up, but how it's been quite fundamental. You're someone who's had something I would describe as a portfolio career, going from, I guess, teaching to then moving to Dubai and working. And I guess I'm curious, in fact, if I even go into that, what did a 12-year-old Marilyn want to be and do back in the day? Would you believe I wanted to be a pilot? I did not see that one coming. Right? Um, I really wanted to be a pilot. I've always been kind of obsessed with this idea of being able to fly places. And, um, and I had the very sad news. So when I was a, a, a child and a teenager, I had a few eye conditions, um, which actually disqualified me from being able to become a pilot. So I gave up on that. But does that mean that you still have that first desire to just... Might have been to fly, but you still like traveling around. Yeah. And I think also what's, you know, if I think about it, what attracted me about being a pilot was A, the ability to go anywhere. Um, but also pilots are leaders and they're responsible for others in meaningful ways. And they're explorers, depending on what kind of pilot you are. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of what being a pilot metaphorically stands for that still rings true to me. But uh, I ended up on a very different path. Were you a very curious teenager that got yourself into trouble? Well, it's interesting. I was very curious. I got myself into trouble, but for the, but those two things were independent from each other. <laughs> In the sense that my curiosity is and has always been kind of intellectual. I, I love reading, learning, knowledge. Um, I love seeing how other people see the world and, and learning from their perspective. I got into trouble for just being, you know, a bit of a rowdy teenager um, and exploring life. But um, yeah, I, I guess I, I did get a bit into trouble, which is really funny now because I have an 11 month old and I, get, I can see already that she's going to be such a sweetheart and she's so compliant. And I'm like, how can I teach you to go and make, you know, make a mess? because <laughs> she is like such a structured disciplined 11 month old and I'm like how are we going to make sure you don't go through life being just like that <laughs> you know? listen for now that's a good space for her to be just enjoy it you don't want it to be messy just yet the time will come <laughs> I'm sure so I'm curious when you because you went into um you're doing strategy and design thinking at um teaching at, at University of Lebanon yeah that's right I did that for a bit and was that how some of your I guess in 
some of that curiosity, leadership, out of the box thinking? Was that what sparked you to kind of move into that side of things for a while? So, you know, I always joke that I'm I'm the second edition, but that the original product is my mother. Um, because so my my mother was born to a family of nine in a village, so not in kind of not in the capital. Um, but even way back when she had a sense of adventure, I think, and she ended up studying software engineering in the 70s and like late 70s, early 80s. And that's that was really pioneering for for the times there were, I think, in a class of 400, there were four women. Um, and it was really incredible that she managed to get there in the first place, considering where she came from. And so I grew up in a, in a single parent household. She got divorced when I was relatively young. My mom had two jobs. Uh, she was an incredibly intelligent, I mean, is an incredibly charismatic and intelligent person. And so I had a role model in front of me that was that, you know, was free of a lot of norms and a lot of uh, expectations of the world around her and allowed herself to explore. I'm sure if I if she heard me say all of this, she'd be like, are you sure you're talking about me? <laughs> but um, but from my perspective, and I think the perspective of anyone other than her, she's a real pioneer in that sense, um, both on her personal life and her professional career. Um, and so I was pushed to explore and never think that anything wasn't accessible to me um, really from watching her. And so I studied architecture at uni, but I never, I think I did one actual architecture project in my whole life. Um, and then my first job where I stayed for nine years and I taught in parallel um, was in a digital agency where I started off doing data entry and then grew to project manage, you know, and then manage people and then manage the agency. And then we were part of a bigger group. So then I grew to managing all of the, you know, software development, product and marketing teams. And, um, and, and I think at every step, like I never had a sense that there was anything I couldn't do. And that's really because of my mother. It has nothing to do with, like, I don't take credit for it. I take credit for living up to it. <laughs> um, but, but she gets all the credit for breaking the ground, let's say. You never had any pressure on your shoulders around what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to achieve. You sound like you had this very just fearless notion of like, I'm just going to keep on striving and moving upwards. Oh, no, for sure. I had plenty. Have you ever met a Lebanese mother? <laughs> so I was thinking like, you, you, you started very much like, you know, it was all good. Like, mom was like, good. You must have oh, no. like, was, was a very completely different model to what, what I'm used to. Or... No, no, no. She was not chill about any of this. But, but what was funny is that what she role modeled versus what she asked of me created that both that kind of desire to excel but also the freedom to do it my way so no for sure like when i went to university you know i always joke i say as a lebanese person you have the choice of like four careers you know you can be a doctor a lawyer an engineer an architect and that's it like you literally don't have another choice if you say i'm gonna go do business it's as if you have failed your entire you know ancestors and everybody everybody gets upset so no, I, there was a lot of pressure for me to perform and be perfect and excel and 
so on. But because she was she lived and lives as a free person, I also could see that in between the lines there was an invitation to also do it however I thought was right. And I took it and it upset her for a while. <laughs> but but she got over it. How is your mom or how how are your parents or your upbringing from that point of view? It was slightly different actually because I can definitely relate to normally coming from uh, an Android household is normally is doctor, accountant, lawyer, engineer. Those are the four kind of things that you kind of subscribe to. In fact, my dad was actually an architect. Um, but with my parents, they were very much like, do what you want to do just make sure that you work hard at whatever that is and you're fulfilled so it is obviously you go to college you go to university that's just standard but it is you can have the you can have the life that you want to have and from a very young age my parents also learned that i'm a very like rebel kind of teenage kid where i'm going to push against the background so if you tell me to do x i'm going to do y so we kind of got to that medium but it was that freeness, when you talk about having that curiosity and that freeness to explore was something that's always been quite real from me from a very young age. I was always very much like, so what does the world look like? What do I need to go on this path or can I just explore in a number of different areas and then see which one I like and then kind of move into that? So that was my, that was my version of navigating. And, you know, like you said, with parents, you're not always going to agree and stuff and you're going to make decisions where they're not always going to be aligned to you. But ultimately, it's your life. And if you're fortunate, because it's not always for everyone else to have parents that actually love and care for you, they'll accept it and they'll play, they'll get over it. So my parents definitely not plan the life I have right now because they still don't completely understand it. Like, what do you do now? But um, they're happy for me. They pray for me. And that's that's all I can, that's all I can hope for. So it's, it's a good thing. Yeah, I get that. My mother, it took her like five years to get over the fact that I wasn't going to be an architect. <laughs> but eventually she did. <laughs> and in your career then, as you've kind of risen up through the ranks and doing what you've done, what was a, what was it like when you had your first leadership position? What mistakes did you make? Well, I always tell this story. So as I told you, I started in this company. I was doing data entry and copywriting. Um, it was like a digital agency. So eventually I figured out that as an architect, I wasn't half bad at project managing things and kind of moved into that. Um, and then I was good enough that, you know, the CEO of the organization, Cyril, then said, okay, now you can manage all of the project managers because you seem to have figured it out. Um, but as I became, so I, I, I mean, obviously it depends on your definition of a leader, but for me, leading others is, is intrinsic. You can be a leader who, who leads through other methods, but for me, it, it includes leading other people. And um, so when I became a manager in that sense, uh, I was still very competitive. I was still very much of an individual contributor. Uh, the way I got here was by being better than everybody else my whole life, right? Or trying to be. Um, and so I didn't understand that that was like skin that I needed to shed. And I, you know, I remember Cyril had given me both kind of, yeah, like management targets, but also you know, sales KPIs and delivery on time and, you know, some, I don't remember exactly what they were, but I know that by September I had maxed out. I had done everything he'd asked me to do, you know, numbers wise. Um, and so I got to my performance review at the end of the year and he spent an hour and a half telling me what a crap manager I was. 
you know, lots of wisdom in that room. It was so hard. Like, I think I had, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that when you have tears that are in your eyes, but they're not yet, you know, going down so that you kind of don't really see the world anymore. <laughs> I can still see him through my tears, you know. Um, of course, I had pride, so I wasn't going to cry in front of him, but it was so hard. And essentially, what he was teaching me, and it's a lesson that has stayed with me my whole life, is that when you lead others, you need to make sure that they become the best version of themselves that they want to be. And your role is to create the setup, the environment, the inspiration, um, the support for them to do that, right? And so for me, I don't, I don't see leadership dissociated from helping others grow. And I hope that I try to live up to that through all the work that I do. It must feel quite hard though when you've hit the targets, you've hit the numbers, and you, you, you come in there thinking that, yes, I'm gonna get an amazing review, like I've done everything I did, and then you come in and you're like, ooh, that was not what I kind of expected. But I think it's a really good point that I think a lot of leaders kind of go through that. When you move and you're looking after people, it's it's a change, it's a different, completely different mindset shift, which you don't always recognize, and you're not always told. And I think that's the other side is not always talked about as well. There's an expectation of, it's not just about your numbers, it's about your people. But both sides assume different things. You assume, yep, I'm still doing my numbers. The senior leadership might think, no, you're about your people, so you should know this, but they don't tell you. So even that in itself, it's something that I've seen play out with a lot of leaders um, nowadays. I'm like, are you telling your people what they need to know? Are you letting them know that they need to kind of change their way of operating when they, when new people step into positions of looking after people? Yeah, I think um, there's a statistic that 87% of people who became managers didn't get any formal training on how to lead others when they became managers. And so I'm a, as a consequence, I'm a huge defender of middle management. I know people like to, you know, go down on them a bit, like in the sense of middle management is crap. They get in the way of everything. Why do we need more managers? I really don't believe that. I think middle management is the key to scaling. But I think they're so, they're like, okay, congratulations, here's your promotion. Good luck figuring out this whole new thing that you've never done before. And I'm not going to help you at all. You know, like if we'd given someone a new technical skill, we would have put them through training, but we don't think of doing it here. And as you say, expectations are badly communicated. And also I wanted to say like, as much as that conversation was inspiring to me, it also took me years to then correct back to also knowing how to still be competitive and let me explore that with you a little bit because I took that to heart. I'm someone who takes feedback very seriously and I will go and do it. You know, like I never... Most people do to be fair, so yeah. Yeah, but I'm like, okay, got it. I hear you. I'm going to prove you wrong, you know? And so I overcorrected to being, in my view, a very kind of doting, loving, present, will support you, you know, will we'll help you through what you need, will try to, you know, be the leader that you need me to be and somewhere along the way lost my um, my own competitiveness became too much of that and actually by creating cosmic I had to rebalance that because I'm like okay well I'm competing against many other people against myself by the way I'm competing against Marilyn from last week all the time um, and I had to bring back that balance and I'm not saying that I always get it right but I really try to think about it meaningfully like that balance between the engagement, the growth, the nurturing, and then the performance, because there's no point having one without the other. 
and whether it's leaders or organizations, it is those that manage to find that balance between you got to hit your numbers, but I'm not going to make your life hell doing it. You know, like <laughs> I'm going to take care of you, but it doesn't mean it's chill on the targets. Um, it's finding that balance that is always, you know, it's, it's an ongoing process. I think you're always going one way or another and recorrecting. Um, but it's so important to constantly think about the two things at the same time, I think. I think it's a polarity when you kind of look at it because it's you need to have you need to have both those who are high achievers those who are founders of entrepreneurs like yourself who run successful companies you need to be able to have both the when I said the upper side of the pole of being hardworking and competitive and all that kind of stuff but also have the vulnerability the openness to be able to lead and move your team in the right way and, you know, in times of stress or hardness, there are times when you, you go on the other side of the line and you're human. So it's the recognizing that fact as well, but always having the fundamental, this is where good looks like. I think that's a super key. But I'm curious to actually hear about you as someone who used to be super competitive. <laughs> how do you work with comparisons? Are you someone who's consistently looking at what other people are doing? Or do you solely focus on yourself? That's a really good question. And I think every leader asks themselves that question. And I've tried to research it, actually, to understand whether companies that are internally focused do better than companies that are market focused. And it's not a clear cut. And I think, you know, when I did my MBA, the, and every MBA student ever has this joke that says the answer to every good question is it depends. <laughs> but <laughs> um, but I, I think I try to go through periods of this and then periods of that in the sense that, no, I'm not trying to see, I'm not, I'm not actually competing with others in the sense of um, only one of us can win. So I think that's the first thing that I'll say is, it's a very friendly competition. You know, in sport, the reason you want to have a worthy adversary is because they push you to be better, not because you want them to lose. I, that's a small nuance. But for me, anyone who does something that I can be inspired from, whether it's a direct competitor or not, I see them as people to learn from, um, not people to knock down. But I am very interested in what other people are doing. And I actually make it a point to go out to even direct competitors and say like, I want to learn from you. Here's what we've been up to. This is what has succeeded. This is what has failed. What can we do better together? Do you want to partner? You know, some people look at me like, but we compete. I'm like, not on everything actually, <laughs> you know, we can find a way. I'm very collaborative. And then I do spend a lot of time also, and actually we have planned time for these things to be very internally focused because one of our values actually as a company is creativity. And for a lot of people, creativity, like they default to like graphic design creativity, like they think it's visual creativity or you have to be an artist. But I think we all create. And I think you can't really create something if you're constantly looking at what everybody else is doing, because creating is truly like bringing something out of nowhere, out of yourself, out of your interactions with your you know, team. Um, and so I also sometimes try to isolate myself from the rest of the world. Um, there's a really great story that I love that a friend of mine shared with me, and he actually ended up writing a book based on this story and his experience. Um, 
I think it's a, it's an island in the Galapagos. I hope I'm not messing up this name. But essentially, it's an island where there's the highest diversity of iguanas in the world. And when he learned that fact, he was quite surprised because you'd think that in a single place there wouldn't be a lot of diversity because it's isolated and so they're not mating with you know, other iguanas from other places. Like, why would there be so much diversity? And he started to incubate this idea, like trying to understand why. And he ended up doing a pilgrimage. So this is Dr. Augustine Chavez. And his book is, is available for free. So if you want to put it in your show notes, I'll give you the link later. Um, he decided to incubate to explore this idea that maybe when something is isolated, it grows to be more interesting, more diverse. So he decided to do this crazy thing, which is to walk from Melbourne to Sydney and to incubate a single idea. In his case, it was about the future of work. But what he learned, and there's a lot of data to support that, for example, Google recently, um, you know, a couple years ago, released data to show that their teams that do daily stand-ups innovate less. So there's a lot of need to also sometimes isolate and incubate and create outside of the influence and input of others if you're really trying to do something in your perspective groundbreaking. So again, that it depends, the balance between, yeah, what can I learn? What are other people doing? How can I be inspired from their energy, their thoughts? But also how can I isolate and incubate a few ideas here and there and see where they go? I think it reminds me of... Um... I think it was it Bill Gates and a number of CEOs have mentioned as well, where they take like a week or two every year just to go to this detached remote space or place or island, depending on who they are, um, just to go and just be away from everyone else. And that's where they get a lot of the inspirational ideas and stuff that they now bring back and they birth into the organizations. Because I think we live in a world that's so much noise around us. And being able to step away from that to be able to actually hear yourself rather than the noise of those around you or the environment around you is super, super key to ensure that you're bringing forth what you want to bring in. You're not completely influenced by just what's happening in the environment, which is not always aligned to purposes sometimes. Yeah, I'm sure you've experienced that too. Like I see it, there are months where, you know, we have too many projects. I'm delivering too many things. I'm very active. I don't have time for that isolation. And by the end of them, I... Even though I'm very proud of the work that we've done, I feel like I haven't been inspiring or I haven't felt inspired because that isolation is so necessary. And and also, I think the curiosity to explore in other realms. Um, so, you know, I'm a generalist. I'm an architect. I ran a digital agency. I built e-commerce and media companies. Then I went and was the CMO of a real estate business. Then I was the CEO of an opera. Now the founder of a consulting firm. I have deep belief in finding inspiration in other realms. And I know that, the, again, the data also supports this. I don't know if you've read this book called Range um, by David Epstein. It's, um, I think the subtitle is Why Generalists Will Triumph in a Specialized World. But, um, but it really looks at amazing use cases for why, you know, an, like if you're an artist but you find inspiration in science or... If you're a lawyer, but you find your next defense in literature or so drawing these connections between realms, you know, a lot of the academic world has gone towards hyper specialization uh, and, you know, you contribute one small thing to one small discussion. But I really think that the Greeks had it figured out and that, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to think that 
you know, working towards being a Greek philosopher and someone who knows a bit about everything is both a mathematician and a poet, you know, um, is something that I really believe in. You're the, um, the quote, jack of all trades, master of none. But you know the rest of that sentence. Exactly. They're often better than a master of one. Yeah. And as soon as you said that, I was like, that's exactly what came to my head. Actually, that's, that's quite true. Being able to pull from multiple spaces and places is actually what also creates some uniqueness. Because if you just focused on one thing, that's the one thing that you ever know. But if you have multiple strengths and multiple, like, like you say, your your linear career that you've not not linear career, like your portfolio career that you had, actually has been quite key for you to, to be like, I'm not nurturing and feeding my my creativity and all those different strands are helping me to build and create. But then I then have the question of what nurtures you? Like what are the things that you do that really fill you up and restore you especially when you're pouring out so much in the, from some of the so creative well that's a great question um maybe a few things so first of all there are the things that kind of um settle your heart you know and your soul and for me in addition to spend now spending time with my daughter because when i look at her i'm like who cares about this email where i should have said something and i didn't you know or this argument or this debate or uh, she gives me perspective, but I also really love to cook for others and to host. It's it's silly, but I think it allows you to remove your focus from yourself and to nurture others in a way that is, uh, you know, physical almost. Uh, and cooking is su- su- such a meditative thing. So I think there's the there's the things that I do to restore myself, so to speak, just to heal from the tiredness, from the effort, from... Um, the stress um, of, of today's world. And then there are things that I do for inspiration. So one is I'm, I'm very curious about other topics. So whether it's watching a documentary on mushrooms or video games or whatever, like trying to go and explore um, things that I don't know. I'm known for being the person who will immediately Google something she doesn't know. So if I'm in a conversation, someone says something, I'll be like, hold on a second. And then I'll go on like the Wikipedia page or whatever. And then I'll become an expert on this random topic for no good reason. Um, but later, somehow that brings me, you know, one day it, it nourishes an idea and, it, and it's really helpful. But I also find that most of my kind of inspiration comes from interacting with others. So if I meet someone who I feel like we have a lot to give to each other, um, I always suggest to set up maybe like a monthly call. And uh, not everybody shows up forever. Like some people eventually after the second or the third one, it just fizzes out and that's okay. But I've had, you know, um, relationships like that, including with people I've never met in real person, in, in real life, so to speak, like away from screen, um, that have lasted years of us just once a month coming in, talking about what's on our mind that month and learning from each other. And I keep like a little notebook of, the things I want to remember from these conversations. Um, and it's just, it's beautiful to see what other people's minds are occupied with and, and to learn from it. So I think who I surround myself with and what they teach me is is also such a big one. And I'm just saying, and next time in Dubai, I'm, I'm here and I can come down for a nice home-cooked meal. So I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying. <laughs> I am Lebanese cuisine queen, by the way. There is nothing you can ask me to do that I won't do for you, no matter how hard it is. And I love it. I just love having... Um, the ability to host people and and create a space for them. What about you? What's your uh, what's your go to place for rest and inspiration? It's probably three things. One, it's spending time with uh, my family. 
Um, so just being able to just, cause I got two teenage kids and, um, my wife as well. And there are times where you just sit back and we just have insane conversations and just spend time laughing. And that really restores me in, in so many ways, uh, because it reminds me of what is important. Um, then I also have time to do most days. I'm trying to do most days now, actually, it's just that time for exercise. So reflection and exercise. And then for me, that's been quite important because that's just my me time, me, my thoughts, no noise around me. Um, and that helps me give some real clarity, helps me get centered. And, you know, third time would just be just being with friends. Um, so it was great to be in an environment of um, other guys where we just we just chop it up and just talk about life, what's going on for them. But it's, I say friends, not acquaintances, where we can just get deep, where you're with people, where you can just be completely open, completely vulnerable, and you don't have to have any mask or pretend. Um, those three different areas I'll probably say the ones that kind of wish storm in the most. Family, community. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's kind of the three things. And especially when it's in the middle, like for me, I try to do that in the morning. So wake up, spend some time praying and exercising. And there's a routine I had for many, many years ago when I was living a very working 16 hour days kind of lifestyle. I was like, well, this is not healthy. So I need to create that time in the morning where it's just for me. So I used to wake up early before everyone else in my house woke up and it was just like an hour for myself. And that just made a massive difference to, to my life and informed a lot of the decisions I made since then, actually. Makes a lot of sense. I've been trying to do to be better with that. I, uh, I definitely am guilty of being a lot in my brain and not enough in my body. Um, and so I've been trying to go on walks in the evening for me because I'm a night person. So when I've finished what I needed to do for the day, my daughter is asleep. My husband's a morning person, so he's probably asleep too. Um, I just go for walks around the neighborhood and it's really helpful. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's a podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right, of your app look for the follow button and click on it and in spotify the follow button should be just below the show's artwork now let's get back into today's episode how do you deal with failure or when things go wrong i'm thinking about in particular you started cosmic on the back of being laid off how was it for you actually going through the layoff period and then deciding to actually then birth something from that experience without giving too many lessons because i think i had a lot of like my context made it a lot easier to receive the layoff because it was the pandemic in that sense it didn't feel like i would i had been laid off because i hadn't performed or wasn't good enough so or at least i didn't spend much time thinking about that because i was like well i mean the opera just closed and i'm the most expensive person on the payroll and no one knows when it'll reopen and when it does they can hire anybody really, <laughs> you know, like, um, I would have done the same thing. So I think obviously it was still hard because it, it was a, a moment of complete uncertainty and this just added more to it. Um, but I think that always going back and being able to say, do I truly believe that I did the best I could with what I knew? 
um, and kind of empathizing with past Marilyn. So I think that's always step one is just to say like, could I, did it, was there something I missed or should have seen? Was there a data point that I chose to ignore and kind of be compassionate with myself that we all make mistakes and it's okay. And then I think take time to allow yourself to feel shitty. Now, for some people, it's longer than others. You know, for me, it's usually no more than a few days. That's something that my mother taught me. Two, three sleeps, that's like the worst. And most, most of the time, it's one sleep, you know. <laughs> but, um, but it's just like, okay, you want to feel bad about it? Go ahead, feel bad about it. Are we done now? Can we move on? And I think the moving on comes from what can I learn from this? And the second that I learn something, I feel I have closure over failure. I've made a lot of bad decisions, even within Cosmic Centers, whether it's products I invested in. I look back and I'm like, wow, I could have kept all of this money, <laughs> you know, like done something else. What an idiot. Um, but I'm like, well, actually, at the time, this was the decision that made a lot of sense. And and something that I find a lot of solace in, I think, especially when the failure comes from a decision that I made or a series of decisions that I made, as opposed to, you know, when failure comes from the outside world, if you're, if you're at peace with yourself, I think you accept it a bit faster and then you know, you trust yourself to recover, right? When the, when the failure comes from you, you, you made a bad decision, um, I actually have spent many, many, many years uh, learning how to make decisions and um, and if you've never been on this website and I think anyone who listens to this podcast and and has made it this far <laughs> here's a great nugget for you um, so there's this blog called Farnham Street I don't know if you're familiar with them yeah uh, and I've been to their yeah Shane Parrish I've been to their conferences if anybody listening doesn't know it's fs.blog go and check it out but it's essentially teaching you the process of decision making, how you understand what is the decision to be made, how to collect the right data, how to generate your options, how to evaluate them using mental models. And I think that, you know, what, what it has taught me that I think is the most important thing is a bad outcome doesn't mean you made a bad decision. Because we tend to judge ourselves by the outcome of our choices, but there are so many things we don't control over there. What we do control is how we got to making that decision and whether it was a right decision at that time. And because I try to be disciplined about big decisions, when they often fail, I'm like, I did my best with what I knew. So I'm ready to move on. I don't feel like I need to dwell. Surely there are things I will learn. But because I followed a good process, the fact that the outcome didn't turn out great, that's okay. I'm willing to let it slide. Which I think is, <laughs> I don't know, sometimes I listen to myself talk and I'm like, how did you become this person? Because I definitely was not this person a few years ago. How did you become this person? Like, what was it that changed all? Pain. Pain. I feel pain very deeply when I disappoint someone or when someone disappoints me. When I, when I treat people one way, get treated another. When I put something out in the world and it blows up in my face, it's so painful, right? Anxiety, shame, stress, anger, like all these emotions, they're, they're physically hard to process. And, and they're important because they're actually, one person once gave me the most beautiful image for how to deal with these emotions. They are messengers. So they're like, I don't know, your Deliveroo guy. He has a pizza for you. Until you take the pizza, he ain't leaving. 
And it's the same with all of these emotions, the anger, the shame. And so what I learned actually is that rather than suppress them, if I listen to them, very quickly they're like, all right, I don't want to stay here, but here's what you need to learn. I'm out. You know? And actually resisting it and being angry and feeling regret and feeling ashamed, that's hard physically, emotionally, your soul breaks. And so I learned that it's a survival mechanism. Like I want less pain. Therefore, I need to become better at dealing with this as fast as I humanly can. Does that make sense? It does. How do you determine or discern when the pain that's been caused is for you to actually do something about the process and when it's yours? Because that little guy's at your house, but my little wrong address. <laughs> you are so right. It is a really good question. And I think to me, this mostly happens when it comes to human interactions. Like the most painful things are when I feel like, this relationship wasn't fair or this moment in this relationship wasn't fair, whether it's with a colleague or a loved one, it, it's, it's, it's equally painful, honestly. Um, and sometimes I sit there and I'm like, what do I need to learn from this? And I sit and I, and then sometimes, not always, there's always something to learn for sure. But sometimes it's like, okay, actually this isn't about me. This one is about them. And then I can choose whether I'm in a place where I'm just going to let it be or where I'm in a place where actually I can help that person. Because now I've understood that the reason they said this, reacted this way, made that decision, et cetera, et cetera, had nothing to do with me. I was just an accessory or a secondary character in their story. And it's not easy to make that. That's why I'm saying it's such a good question because it's not always easy to say, actually, you don't really matter in this one. You're secondary. <laughs> uh, don't make it about you. It's not, even though it feels like it is. It's a, it's a tough one, but I've, I think I've gotten better with the years at not letting it you know, get me down for too long. So because of the way that you, sounds like you process things and you go through that journey, you sit with it, you understand it, you take the lessons from it, you move on. Would you say you're someone who has regrets or you don't intend to do regrets? No, I'm not allowed to feel regret. You're not allowed to feel regret. It's a personal rule. Okay. I've never seen anyone act from a place of regret and do something good. Maybe that's just me. I've had a lot of, you know, if you come from a place like Lebanon, it's full of drama and, and unlived lives and, uh, you know, um, and you, you're surrounded. Actually, regret is an emotion that's very present in, in my society, in, in my community. Um, and then observing when people act from a place of regret or shame or anger, when you act from that place, not from what you've learned from it, it never ends up well. Never. Um, I've never seen an entrepreneur say, or I don't know, like we, because we need public examples, right? Or, or a friend say, like, I felt so much regret, so I made my life way much better, you know, or I built this company because of regret. Or I came up with this crazy innovative idea because I had regret. Sure, failure teaches us things and we, we all fail to succeed. But regret is an emotion that shouldn't linger. And so it's a personal rule of mine that I'm really not allowed to feel it. And, and what I mean by that is that I try to be intentional about the decisions I make so that I can't be like, oh man, I really regret doing that. No, you were there. You made that decision. Maybe you did a stupid thing. You take responsibility for it you're not allowed to feel regret. How many more rules do you have? 
how much time do we have on this podcast? <laughs> okay, no, wait, I'll give you another one that I really love that I share with my team a lot. Um, and it's a, it's a sentence that someone said to me when I was a teenager. And it took me a very, very, very long time to understand why they had found this to be such an insightful expression. But it's um, if there's no solution, then there's no problem. How do you understand that? Every problem has a solution. And therefore, if there is no solution, there's no problem. And therefore, you're just wasting your time and spinning around and around and around. There you go. How much, how often do we worry about things that might happen in the future? Or things that we just can't change anymore, but we sit around and we mull them over. And I found this expression to be a lifesaver too, because it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you are wasting your resources and your time. And I, I saw something on TikTok that was beautiful. It was like, worrying about tomorrow's problem today is overburdening Marilyn of today because she's not equipped to deal with them yet because they haven't happened. And so in that sense, I guess, even though I'm not um, learned enough, but in that sense, like it's close to stoicism. It's just this idea that, well, I'm just going to flow with this because there's literally nothing to do here. So I'm not going to dwell. Just be in the moment and focus on what you can or use your energy to focus on what you can today rather than worry about tomorrow. Would you say you are someone who's very confident? Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. Did you see this um, commencement speech uh, this, week, this week that was circulating? I have to remember the name of the person who gave it. She's the founder of uh, Marshall Plan for Moms, or I have to find. So I'll find her name in a second. But uh, yeah, Reshma Saujani. So she gave a commencement speech recently. And I think, I don't know her well enough, but from her speech, I saw it on, on social media the other day. She spent quite a bit of time kind of on the topic of imposter syndrome. And she gave this beautiful speech and... Um, in it, she started with a very interesting historical anecdote that in the 1800s, uh, when bicycles became um, you know, widely available, there was a symptom that was described by doctors and for which women would be like, you know, um, diagnosed, which was called bicycle face, which was um, some random thing that had been invented by the culture, but because Women riding bicycles allowed them to gain new levels of freedom, of being able to transport themselves from one town to another. It was a very important tool, for example, for the suffragists to be able to meet and like come up with plans and so on. And, and so there was this whole thing invested, invented by that culture that was called bicycle phase. And of course, there was like no medical or data-driven reasoning behind it, but it was some ailment that women were um, kind of attributed uh, and I think of things like imposter syndrome, and she, this is what she was saying, like, is the same thing. It's something that we invented. Women suffer, for, of course, everybody suffers from it, but me as the, as the woman, it, it's usually the case that more women report feeling that. Um, and, I, and for sure, there are days where I walk into a room and I'm like, how did I make it here? You know, like, who is the person who's so blind that they think I'm the right person for this? Um, but but similarly, I think I've I'm like well clearly I'm not the only one who thinks I should be here. So here we are. Let's go. <laughs> so I think you know that's the thing is when you see someone like me, especially if, if you know we don't have a deeper conversation, it looks like 
oh, this person's got it all together, she's hella confident, whatever, she's a public speaker, she's super strong, she's very opinionated, she's got it together. It's not true. I just think the only thing, I feel all the things that anybody, any person feels, I just taught myself over the years to process them really fast. And so I, there are moments where I have zero confidence. I walk into a meeting, I'm like, I'm really going to fail at this one, you know? But I've, I've taught myself to like, be like, okay, you have three minutes of feeling this way. Then we're moving on. Um, and that's really it. And, and all of my triggers, like I have a deep fear of abandonment. I, you know, um, I need to be perfect. Everybody needs to love me. I know all of these things about myself. And I know when I get triggered from somebody not thinking I'm the sunshine out of my ass. But I've also learned to process it, you know, and like, okay, Marilyn, it's cute that you, young Marilyn is in the room and she's afraid that she's going to get abandoned. And I understand you're feeling this way, but you're 37 years old and you're fine, you know? Um, so that's, I think that's kind of, what I wanted to, it's a long-winded answer, but yes, I'm confident. It doesn't mean I'm confident 100% of the time. It just means that I recover from when I don't feel that way. I think it also speaks to um, the importance of self-awareness because actually confidence a lot of times is when something happens to us that we don't really know what it is or we don't know where it's coming from and it kind of knocks us. For you to be able to have that separation of okay this is the younger Marilyn or this is down to abandonment or even having the the rules that you have for yourself you kind of be able to create this okay I feel this emotion I recognize what it is I can do something about it and then you move on so you have this this process that you've done for yourself which I know hasn't come easily and it takes time but also takes intentionality and takes you being able to take a step back and process those different things which for a lot of us I think there's a there's a survey done years ago when it talked about how most people don't like to be alone by themselves and the reason why that was was because of the different thoughts that can come up and people don't want to feel that and therefore we now engage in back in the day or when the survey was done it was around um you go out partying spend time with your friends drugs gambling sex all those kind of different addictions kind of were the thing obviously now it's social media that's, that's the easiest thing that just people can use to kind of escape but that's the reality where people run away from those feelings. You are, sounds like you're quite up as a way you've actually stepped into them and therefore allows you to be able to understand when they happen and when those triggers occur. And then you can show up a lot more confident. You can do you because you're like, cool, that's it. I know what it is. I can do something about it. Let me move through it. Back to the quote that you kind of gave. Wait, I can do something about this. The solution. If I can do something about this, there isn't one. So I'm worried about it. It'll be fun. So that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and I always joke, and it's it's quite actually true, that because I was always incompetent at my jobs, I've never come from a place of confidence through competence, right? Like, okay, I started architecture, never built anything. I went into digital agency. I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't know anything about real estate in Dubai. I didn't know zero things about running a performance art space. And so... The fact that I was always incompetent at the jobs that I was in was very freeing because it also meant that I didn't rely on my expertise to feel confidence. My confidence comes from knowing that I can ask good questions, that I can catch up relatively quickly, that I'm good at getting people to collaborate with each other and with me. Um, 
that we can figure it out rather than because I'm an expert in this very unique thing and everybody needs to trust me because I know better. How did you get those jobs? I don't know. <laughs> See, these are the moments where I would go into them and I'd be like, who made this decision? What is wrong with them? <laughs> Honestly, it just, it was all very serendipitous. I mean, the first job I got, I was a, I was a, whatever, 22 year old. I was very cheap, you know, like it was just like, okay, come do data entry, whatever. We don't care. Like there was no, no projection of where the company would go or, or where I would go with it. And I think actually the, the story of how I got my job as um, the CMO and then the CEO, because they were part of the same organization, which is EMAR, is actually a really nice one. Because the way it happened is four years prior to that, I had a client. So in my first job, I had a client whose cousin uh, was studying architecture. And she said to me, would it be okay for my cousin to come see you? You know, she's hesitating about whether she wants to be an architect, like as a full-time job, or whether she wants to transition to something else. Given that you've done that, would you have the time? I said, of course. And the cousin came over and we ended up speaking for three hours. You know, it was a busy day, but it was like, it mattered. This was a conversation that, you know, could inform someone's life decisions. And so we ended up sticking around. Then I introduced her to a few, few people. We had each other on LinkedIn, never saw her again. And so she ended up deciding that architecture was what she wanted to do, moved to Dubai, worked for Imar. And the chairman of Imar, as any good real estate developer, is very close to the design team. And so she knew him directly and knew his kind of his team. And they had lunch together. They sat on the same floor. And at some point, he's, he expressed that he wanted to recruit someone who came from tech, but who also understood real estate. And so this, this person who I hadn't seen for four years puts my name up. Whoa. Right? Com complete coincidence. I didn't apply for the job. I didn't know about it. But she's like, look, there's this girl. She works in tech. She studied architecture. She lives in France. I'm pretty sure she wouldn't move here, but why don't you call her? And interestingly, they called me two weeks after my husband had accepted a job in Dubai. So I had left my job. We were going. And I'm like, okay, when I get there, I'll figure it out. Like, I speak Arabic. I work in tech. It can't be that hard. But it just, it happened. And, you know, I always think of... Um, the give and take, uh, you know, the Adam Grant book, or even like just in general about how you come to relationships. And that's such a beautiful example of, there was nothing telling, like there was no, there was no exchange there. It was purely like, I am happy to provide you with my time, my personal story, anything to support you make your future decision. And really like thinking back, I didn't even realize I was doing that, but you post-rationalize these things. Cause I got this crazy job, you know, <laughs> like, I was like, how did I get here? Um, and so it was just something happened four years ago and I gave someone time or attention or whatever it was. And, and look at how these things end up, you know, embodying in the world and becoming things. Uh, and that's how I got that job. And then I was there and, you know, marketing people get tend to get cycled through a lot in that organization. Um, and the last one had just been let go. And then the chairman was like, you, <laughs> you're going to go be, <laughs> you're going to go do this. And I'm like, I hate marketing. He's like, that's okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> Figure it out. And I did. And I did that for about a year. 
And then the opera job was somehow similar. So the previous leader had just left. I wanted to leave. And I had shared that with um, the CEO. And I was like, look, I'll stick around for you for another two months. But I never wanted the marketing job. And I did it for a year. And I'm, I'm proud of what we did, but I'm done. And then he's like, how about you become the CEO of the opera instead? <laughs> I was like, all right. You know, and I think also it's um, a lesson learned from that, too. So beyond beyond the give before you take, um, it's also ask for what you want. Like if I hadn't told the CEO that I wanted to leave, if I hadn't been clear about, you know, what I would what I was interested in and not interested in, he might have never made the connection. Right. Never thought of me as that person. And I probably would have then resigned and left and it would have been a broken relationship. Um, so I think putting it out there of like what I did or didn't want was also very helpful. This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out, not from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions on the line will help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that you'll experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year, but that's something that you're interested in. If you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional, to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, Send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Right, let's get back into today's episode. It's interesting when I hear you talk about that journey and everything you've shared so far. And I think back to um, the organization, like customer centers, and what you do and how you show up. You show up in a very different unapologetic kind of way where it's not around this is the standardized way of doing things it's more around we're working in collaboration with you we're focused on an impact and we are doing things in a way which might not always make sense but we get the job done and customers that were satisfied which has led to the immense growth that you've had the last three years and just which speaks to good work that you're doing. But it's quite interesting kind of listening to them, pairing those two things together, how a lot of what your company embodies is how you've also lived and shown up as as an individual. You know, it's always very interesting to me when um, when that is reflected to me. Like, you know, words like um, unapologetic or rebel or are not words that I usually associate with myself. Like, I, I think I'm a very kosher person, you know? <laughs> um, I don't think I'm all that... And it's very interesting when they're reflected to me. And and actually, so you and I met in a broader call where, um, where that was reflected to me very strongly, like some of the words that people associated with the story. And I, and I thought about it a lot. And because I was like, I, I'm not a... Re- I mean, am I? Um, but I think it's because... Actually, I come from a place of caring deeply about the companies that we help, of caring deeply about improving. Like when I say these things, I know, again, they sound like, you know, PR sound bites, right? Like these are the three things Marilyn is always saying on repeat. But 
but it's true. I care deeply about the workplace. I, I, work is a, is a value for me. You know, for some people, work is a thing that they do to make money so they could spend it on other things they care about. I really care about work. Mainly, probably because I grew up in a single parent household where my mother worked two jobs and she was very passionate about it too. So I grew up in thinking like work is something of value where we get to create things and bring the world forward. And I care about making the workplace a better place because if you're going to spend eight to 10 to 12 hours a day doing this, you better love it. And so maybe the reason I show up as either rebellious or willing to take risks or you know any of those things is actually because I deeply care. And so if the first method doesn't work, we'll try the second. And if what's normally done doesn't work, we'll invent it. And if because the the goal is what I have in mind, I don't actually realize if what I'm doing is particularly unique or not. You're just focused on the goal and you're willing to try and do whatever it takes to achieve that goal rather than focused on, I guess a lot of times people focus more on the process and we need to do this and then do this. And you're like, okay, that's the goal. What are the different things we can think about to actually make that happen? Let's go for it and try it. But, and, but to be fair, that creativity, though, which, again, is in part your story, it's also very scary for people because sometimes that means you step and do things which are new or things that have not been tried in a particular space. So you need to have the courage, the confidence, and the boldness to be able to do that, which is where a lot of people don't do, but you're willing to step into that. Yeah, and, and can I say also the leaders who trust me are also courageous? Yes, they have to be. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they have to be taken on because again, people is easy to be like, let's just go for the standard and be like, no, let's let's do something slightly different. I guess um, what's been the biggest learning from running your business self? And now three years in, you know, I, I, a lot of people have come and go, a lot of projects, a lot of clients. Um, I think my learning today, where I stand right now, is I will do this through thick and thin. As the years have passed and I've gotten much better at dealing with setbacks, and again, just because we look successful on the outside doesn't mean the line is like that, right? Like, um, Is that there is something in the work that I do here, that we do here, that feels important enough that even, you know, you know, sometimes this has happened to you, like something really sets you back and you're like, this is it. We're going to shut down Cosmic Centers. I'm going to go be a waitress somewhere, you know? Oh, dear. <laughs> Chat people up, have my biggest responsibility be whether I can, you know, not to undermine the, it's a very tiring job physically, but I'm just saying like, feel like I can just, I have my own space. I have to remember what people ordered, be nice to them, make sure the process runs well, everything is clean, but that's it, right? And then I can go home and like not think about, this so sometimes this happens to me i'm like i'm just gonna run away you know and sometimes it goes all the way to i'm gonna run away from my family too you know <laughs> sometimes the disappointment is so big all you want to do is just hide you know um and i've had many of those moments over the past three years but the how connected i feel to what we do is what allows me to then you know one or two or three sleeps later to wake up and be like okay what are we doing this week centaurs you know <laughs> to get back to it somehow okay so how are you then defining success oh that's a great question so i've always said that my criteria for success is how many people's lives we improve i don't care how much money we make of course it's important that we're financially stable that the team feels like they're working for a company that you know isn't um 
a massive risk to their lives. Uh, but I don't, you know, I don't think of how many employees do I want to have or how big do we want to get ourselves, but rather how many people can we serve? And that's why, like, if you look at what we do as an organization, yeah, we make money from consulting. That's where most of our profitability comes from. But we reinvested very quickly in content that is free. Like in the past two years, we've published more than 220 articles on our website. I challenge you to find a consulting company that's done that. Maybe you guys. <laughs> you guys are prolific, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's deeply ingrained. We invest in it. We put our money where our mouth is. We try to make resources either free or very accessible because we measure success by how many people's work lives we've been able to improve. In a time where, especially in the current global economy, where it's about money and margins and profitability and all that kind of stuff, to be able to be like, yeah, that's important as part of business, but actually it's around the impact that we can kind of have on people's lives. I think it also kind of speaks into even the importance of when you think about the next generation coming up, when you ask them what's the number one thing that's important to them, it's around, I want to work in an organization that has impact. It's not about the money again, which is super important to them, but actually number one is around impact. So for you to have that as your main focus and then to go to organizations to help them to have impact, it helps them now be able to attract the right people. And that's kind of like the multiplier effect that you kind of see going through, which is, um, it's really good to have as, as an anchor for, for a business. And um, I guess as we wrap up, and I don't want to wrap this up, but hey, we can have we can have our monthly call if you want. I'll be up for that. I would actually, I'll be up for that. So, um, how do you define leadership? I think leadership is a combination of mindsets and actions. Um, you know, if we kind of look back at our conversation that we just had, and if I look at also leaders who inspire me. Um, you know, courage, since that's one of the most recent things we spoke about, knowledge, curiosity, faith in their own creativity, their ability to collaborate with others. I think you can't be a leader if you're not able to both, you know, um, kind of animate others and give them like um, energy and action, but also pr protect them to some degree. I really think the role of a leader is to create a stable environment in a crazy world for everybody else to do their best work and to not not in a not in a you know completely unfair way but to shield others from the uncertainty and the volatility of the world so that they can focus on creating beautiful things um, and I think leaders take action um, they don't wait for things to happen to them they're willing to try and test and fail and learn and move forward um, and more importantly, I think leaders build. They build something. And you can never build anything meaningful on your own. It was eight people. You have a great team working, working with you, working alongside of you. And then I guess it even goes further than that of people outside of that. So whether it's friends, a partner, all those bits and pieces, even kids. That they inspire you to do what you want to do. So I know from my journey, they've been fundamental. So I'm sure it's the same for you as well. I can't wait to see her grow up and hopefully to have created a better place for her to, to grow up in. Marilyn, this has been fun. 
thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for just coming on, talking, sharing, dropping those those gems, those words of wisdom, which I know other people are going to learn from. So I really appreciate you. Thank you for the invitation and for creating this beautiful space for me to come and reflect it. So it's been a gift. Thank you. A pleasure. This is the Leadership. We'll see you next week. While you're still recovering from that amazing conversation, let me give a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. I just remember really like disliking all of my teachers and even the teachers that were all quote unquote cool. Um, just problems like, for, for, for no reason. I think part of it was also a little bit of restlessness on my part. Like I didn't feel like school was majorly challenging. I didn't feel like it was majorly relevant in terms of some of the stuff that we were um, being asked to study. I think encouragement for me came in sports, I was really into basketball when I was I was growing up. Um, I was part of a church group as well, so I think I got a bit of encouragement from from church in terms of um, just being positive. Um, and then I guess my, my parents were always supportive. I'm not sure if encouragement is that the word that I'd use to describe it, but they were they were definitely supportive of. Um, working hard and um, you know committing to something and making something of myself 